0: Okay, hi. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show. Welcome aboard. And the guest today is Tillman Gerngross. He's the CEO of Atomab, where he was a co-founder. He was also co-founder of GlycoFi many years ago and many other companies, including Adagio, which is one of his most recent. He's a co-founder there. We talked about that on, uh, on this show. He's also a professor of engineering at Dartmouth. So what did we, what did we discuss? Um, we discussed his concept of an academic as truth finder. Uh, we discussed the offer that triggered competing bids for his company Glycophiles years ago. And we talked about what happened between Adamab and the MIT researcher Ram uh last year. Let's pick the conversation up here where he and I were just talking about Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier winning a Nobel Prize. I think that's all you need. So here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Tillman Gerngross. Listen up. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded,
1: textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
0: You know, the other thing is I've, I've... because I was, you know, doing my research, I always identify you with Atomab. I think that's because the first time I really sat down to talk with you, you were CEO of Atomab, but I'd forgotten all about GlycoFi, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's when I knew Laura. I knew Laura from GlycoFi. Those were the Uh, early
0: glycoengineering days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. But um, so, you know, the the first thing I kind of want to know how you first understood that you were going to pursue a life of science or thought that maybe you might want to pursue a life of science.
1: I think it had much to do with like um the family i grew up in my father was an architect my mother was a interior decorator or designer and a sculpturist and so it was sort of an artsy kind of scene and what i while i appreciate that and i still do to this day um it's a world where opinions matter way more than facts you know it's like this is an important piece of art this is a you know a derivative and this is like not so important this is kitsch and this is real art these are all opinions right and and i found it very hard to navigate that world because there was nothing like tangible you know like one day was this the next day was that and i just didn't like that and so i think people look for stability and 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 some people find that in religion that wasn't my thing and i certainly found stability in sort of in science where you could ask very concrete questions and um, if you're smart enough, you can devise experiments to answer those questions. And that gives you at least, uh, you know, uh, uh, an answer that you can that you can rely on. And yeah, you come back a year later and it's still the same answer and other people can reproduce it. And it's, just, it's it, you know, it's still the same answer. And so that world to me was just extremely appealing. And so I think that's what led me down that path.
0: Yeah. The, the idea in art sometimes where things go in and out of favor. It's great one year and 10 years later, they've decided no. And that turned exactly. you off. Exactly. That totally
1: turned me off, yes.
0: Huh. But you, if your dad being an architect, that's kind of a mix of science and art
1: a little bit, right? I mean, there's engineering in there. There is. But again, amongst the architects, they're the ones that are more on the engineering side, and they're the ones that are way out on the artsy side. And my father is way out on the artsy side. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> um, so where, where did you grow up? Um, we we grew up really all over the world. My So I was born in Austria, oh, uh, in, in southern Austria on the border to Italy. And um my grandfather was the village doctor in this village in the Austrian Alps and um, and then uh, um, um, when I was four or five years old we moved to the states. my father went to UCLA and so to teach. no he was a student he was a student oh. of architecture there um, um, and so that's when the family moved to, to L.A. and I went to uh, elementary school there. And then we moved back to Germany and then back to to Austria. And so I, I would say in elementary school, I probably went to like six or seven different schools. We just moved oh, all seriously? the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah.
0: What is so, that? I mean, I you know, the, the stereotype is, is that makes you um, that you make friends easily. Is that true? Did that feel true to you? Like you're forced to be able to make friends easily and approach people. I don't know. I, no, and, no, no, no,
1: no, I, I think that's a that's a common uh, common uh, response that people have to to that sort of story. and I think there's some truth to that. but also it makes you la- less um impressionable to local customs or local vernaculars or local, you know um cultural norms because you have sort of a different, I think, a more broad picture perhaps. and um and so I think for me, it had both effects. I mean, I, I get along with most people, but um, I think it also helps you sort of form your identity perhaps a little bit earlier. Yeah. And then you just keep that identity no matter
0: where you go. Exactly. Yeah. And, and sometimes that identity becomes like the family, right? You have your brother.
1: I don't know. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. Have a, yeah, I have a sister. Yeah. She, she lives in Jamaica. Um, and then I have a whole bunch of half siblings. Okay. So sometimes that family unit gets real strong
0: if you're moving around like that, and that becomes your core identity.
1: Well, in our case, it was complicated because my parents got divorced when we were 12. And then we started, you know, my mother moved in a different town and we would live with my mother. And so um, in, in our case, that was not, I think, the net outcome. The net outcome was more that I became extremely independent very early on. So I remember like 16, 17, um, you know, where other kids were like um getting involved in stuff that got him into trouble. I had plenty of that, but for example, I was really interested in gardening of all things and had this huge vegetable garden. And it's, and what I loved about it is you sort of put the effort in and over the course of a season, you get all these wonderful vegetables back, right? And I liked cooking. And so I just had a very different interest than, than many other people, but I had lots of friends that enjoyed being part of that. And so it all ended up well. This, this grandfather of yours, that was
0: a, a physician. Did that have anything to do with you turning towards science too? Maybe the, the idea of medicine or healing?
1: No, um, I don't think so. I mean, he was a role model in some ways, but I don't think he was influential in that regard.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you're, you, you start, you're kind of like shying away from the artsy side of your parents more towards science. And how does that, what does that look like? Did you, I mean, were you a standout in, in science in high school? What were you thinking about
1: undergrad? yeah i did i mean the the system there is a little bit different right so you you go through gymnasium which is the equivalent of high school here um and in in in, at that time i was already very interested in science and sort of that was you know chemistry biology physics math were the things i excelled in um and then uh, you you at that point decide what you wanna major in when you go to university. So it's not that you sort of do undergrad, it, it's changed the system since, but when I was when I was there, you decided what you wanted to do. And I was interested in chemical engineering. So that was my thing. And so I started studying chemical engineering. Um, actually, first I went to Paris for half a year because in, in high school, I also studied French. And so I wanted to improve my French, but ended up hanging out mostly with Americans in, in Paris and never really, Got fluent, um, had a good time, but um, right. but but then came back to Austria, started studying chemical engineering, got my master's in in '89, and then in '89 I applied for a fellowship to um, to go to MIT, basically as a visiting scientist to do my my PhD thesis oh. for the Austrian university. So and um, so I um, ended up in. Um, in a guy named Arnie Demaine's lab at MIT. And that's where I did the work that constituted my uh, my PhD thesis in Austria. So when you, you'd spent that, I don't know how long
0: in LA, a few years? Three years, yeah. Three years. You came back speaking English then.
1: Yeah, exactly. So actually, then, I, ba- I barely spoke, I, my German was pretty poor because as a kid, you pick it up really <laughs> fast, yeah. but you also lose it quickly. So yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was fluent in English.
0: You came back, picked up the German again, I'm assuming. Yep, yep. Yep went to do some french that didn't pan out but again you're probably <laughs> using your english with all those americans so that yep. that set you up to go to mit no problem obviously right
1: um i wouldn't say so i mean i think in the, the university i was at at the university i was at the technical university of vienna was not a particularly like well known school or like a feeder school that you know would would sort of set you up to go to mit but i knew uh, i knew this this uh, this professor arnie Demain who was very active in this field that i was doing my thesis on on um and so that's the connection that then led to uh, to me uh, coming to MIT. And that really changed my life in many ways.
0: Yeah. So is that is that common where, you know, no. someone, no, that someone, you sort of said, look, I want to go study someplace else to get my dissertation finished.
1: That yeah. Fact- I mean, I, I always joke, it depends on what you do. If you're an opera singer, living in Vienna is a great place, right? If yeah. you're a biotechnologist, living in Vienna is not a great place. So it depends on what you want to do. And for me, sort of the, the Taj Mahal of, 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 of biotechnology activity was, was, in my opinion, MIT at the time. And so that's where I wanted to go.
0: Okay, great. So then, um, you know, you just said that that changed
1: your life. How did that change your life? It's just the way science was approached, the amount of responsibility you were given. And, you know, here's the problem we're trying to ask. Uh, here's the problem we're trying to understand, or here's the question we're trying to ask, go figure it out. And giving you that freedom to figure it out, um, just unleashed, unleashed a level of effort and creativity and, and just the joy I got doing the work it was, I, I just really loved it. And, um, and sort of that got me really hooked on, on doing the kind of stuff I still do to this day. Which is investigational science, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah we'll get into the transition a little bit later and sort of yeah. like how, how there's really two worlds in science, right? There are the basic discovery scientists, um, whose job it is to figure out how things work in the world. You know, we just talked about a Nobel Prize. I mean, figuring out how this gene editing works, right? That is, we didn't know that before. Now it's a, a powerful tool and there are companies that came from that. But the original impetus was, let's understand of how the world works. And that's yeah. sort of basic science. Um, as a bioengineer, I see the world somewhat differently. I mean, my job is more to understand where's the science, what is possible with the current understanding of science, and then figure out how do you connect that knowledge to things that matter to humanity. In other words, how do you connect the knowledge with solving a problem that matters? And so that's what we, I think we did a piece, I don't know how many years ago. You remember that uh, piece you and I had worked on the, it's the problem, stupid. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Like you
0: have to figure out your problem
1: in order to,
0: yeah, that has to be the first thing you do.
1: And so, so that is ultimately, I think, where I settled and what I've been doing for the last 20 years or so. I ended up, um, graduating in Austria with, with this work that I did in RNA domains lab and already had a postdoc officer, uh, sorry, a postdoc offer at MIT. So I just went back, graduated, took the next plane, uh, came back to Cambridge and um, started my postdoc um, with a guy named Tony Sinski and a professor in the chemistry department named Joanne Stubby and completely changed fields um, and started doing something new. And that's what I always, I always was interested in something new. And so I did that for two years and then Th- that faculty member and a bunch of people that were in the lab, uh, be, long before me started a company and I joined that company and was with that company for five years. And that was kind oh. of misery. Um, it's a company called metabolics. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. um uh, and, uh, I learned a lot of how not to run a company. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I was there for five years and then, uh, in E in 98, um, I left that company and joined the faculty at Dartmouth.
0: Okay, so they formed the company and asked you to be in it, and yep. you. So you saw that from the ground up, meaning the way it was formed, uh, whatever IP they had, where they got their funding, et cetera. You were part of all that. I was the first
1: employee, I think. Yeah.
0: Y- yeah. So did that sort of cue you into how to start a company, e- even whether you were learning the negative things? You know, you said you saw some things you didn't like, but you know, you were at the ground floor.
1: I think that may have helped. It's hard hard to, it's hard to tie the two together. Um, yes. I mean, I'm sure I learned a few things. Yes. But I don't think it provided a a sort of a blueprint of how to do this, um, later on. Okay. So
0: when you left it, I mean, you wrote a paper and so we should talk about what metabolics is, right? Metabolics is,
1: yeah, it was, it was, so the story was, was that, um, it was an interesting story because there, there's a theme that we may actually get into a little bit deeper, which is, um, in my view, society is predisposed to receive certain information. And when they receive that information and it's confirmatory of their own views, they just like eat it up. Like, for example, one view is plastics are bad and we need to replace them, right? Nobody will dispute that with you. Yeah. Nobody has any facts, really. But and in fact, in my opinion, it's the exact opposite. And we can get into that later. Um, but that's just, it's, 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 uh, it's what the public thinks. Um and when you feed them what they think, they'll like it. Or like now, like you know, we're gonna do a drug discovery with artificial intelligence. Everyone eats that up. There's no evidence that it has really done anything profound, but you know, people will eat it up all day long. Yeah. So um so this particular um, area was around making biomaterials, bioplastics from renewable resources. Again. Bread and butter issues, who's gonna argue it's a renewable resource, it's biodegradable, and it's made by a living system. Well, isn't that that's just green all around? Yeah. What nobody factored in is when you actually account for the material streams into the process that include fertilizers and all the stuff that needs to happen to make the raw materials, you end up actually using more energy and you're emitting more greenhouse gases than when you just make polyethylene from from natural gas and oil. So in other words, the, the, the net impact on the environment is worse if you if you do this quote unquote green process. And I started to appreciate that because I was running the process development group there. I realized how much cooling these reactors needed. I, re- I realized how much agitation and how much oxygenation they require. And that's, you know, in a small scale, it's a little compressor at 100,000 liter scale. That's, you know, huge, huge energy consumption. And I think I was the first one to sort of ask the question, well, if this is so green, let's just quantify the inputs and outputs. And that analysis led me to the conclusion that, yes, if you want to use up a third of the U.S. agricultural land, if you want to emit more greenhouse gas emissions, if you want to uterify the water and, you know, have nitrogen and phosphate um, emissions to the water increase, if you want all that, this is a great technology. If you want to do something good for the environment, it's probably not a great technology. And so... um, uh, that was a rough awakening, but this goes back to this topic that you brought up earlier, which is I wanna do something useful. And so I, this was a hard lesson because I spent five years in industry and then maybe a year at Dartmouth figuring this out. So six years of my life I spent on something that retrospectively I say was more or less a complete waste of time. Yeah, but that, so
0: yes, all the things that you just said, agree with, but isn't the idea, right, is that eventually once you have these few flagship companies that learn how to make bioplastics, eventually the costs come down, they they get more energy efficient, the carbon footprint lowers, and eventually you make bioplastics that are easier and better on the environment, or or you're saying it's never gonna be possible?
1: Well, my my analysis wasn't actually looking at the real world energy consumption. It was just saying, if this is 100% thermodynamically efficient. So I was already assuming all the improvements that are possible. And even under those scenarios, you just could not get there. You just could not get there. And, and so, and, and the other thing is, again, people think that biodegradability is such a wonderful thing, but let me tell you what actually is going on in the world right now. The world is collectively, other than of course the United States, is trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and trying yeah. to, to, to reduce that. So if I give you two plastic materials, one that you throw into a landfill that is inert and doesn't do anything, and the other one actually degrades into methane. That's a bad thing, that's not a good thing. So this whole notion of biodegradability feeds into a human behavioral problem, which is like we just throw shit away and and then we want it to disappear, but we have to pay for that convenience in the form of greenhouse gas emissions. So you choose your poison. I'm saying, or I have the position that that biodegradability per se is not a good thing actually, because it leads to greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Yeah, but uh, okay, so I'm walking around Saying things like, "Well, bioplastics are going to be the thing we're going to use one day. We're not going to use petroleum-based uh, products anymore, and that's going to be a positive." And I'm, I'm, you're basically telling me that I'm just spouting the idiocy things that make me feel better.
1: You know, if you, I mean, if, if twisted you twisted my arm, I would say yes. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think you're right, Brady. I don't think you're right. I think this is a, this is a, this is a bullshit story that's been sold to the public for many years, and because it feels into look, I spent. You have to listen to someone who spent six years of their life trying to promote this stuff and figure it out. I mean, I really know all the details of how this process works, what the shortcomings are. And what I'm telling you is no, you're not right. You're wrong. And, 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 but, but I, everyone wants to believe it. Again, if you sell them, here's something that is, you know, uh, biodegradable, made from a renewable resource, and made by living sold. Everyone is like, love it. I want that.
0: Yeah. Right? No, I, do. I I totally agree. Listen, what I hate I want... to tell
1: you is polyethylene is an incredibly, uh, it's an amazing material. Just its, it's, it's physical properties um, and actually the relatively low environmental impact to make it. Yeah. And then when you throw it away, it's just fossil carbon that we extracted, we then used, and then we put back into the ground where it is inert. It's not leaking anything out. It's just like sitting there doing nothing. So anyway, it's a longer discussion but uh <laughs> well no look I I love this idea that uh you know it's
0: tr- cuz it, it this applies to everything in our world right now especially politics that you believe the things that you want to believe because it makes you feel good and it sort of scratches you where you itch I get that. And uh I do want to believe the person who spent 6 years of life Studying us and says it's actually not going to work the way we all want it to believe all believe it's going to work. So yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely tell me those things. My view
1: is it is not going to provide an environmental benefit. If you want to like stimulate uh, employment in rural areas of America, it's a good thing because there's got to be more farming activity. But with that, you're using agricultural land to make plastic that you're now taking away from the food supply. So again, these are always way more complex, these issues, and people reduce it to sort of the few sound bites. um, But that's not how the world typically works. I mean, that's the same thing with corn and and ethanol,
0: bioethanol, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Yeah, okay. So five years uh, at Metabolics, and then a year at Dartmouth sort of putting the paper together, and you published a paper saying... Look, I, I published
1: a paper in Nature Biotech, and then I, I did another piece with a friend of mine in uh, in Scientific American, sort of like explaining the whole thing to the sort of scientifically minded um, general audience. Yeah, and was there, you know, you still had friends? I'm assuming at Metabolics. How did that go over? <laughs> Not so well. I would I would say even at Dartmouth. I mean, you know, the people that that sort of hired me into their group that were hoping that I would be. Uh, involved in in research promoting the conversion of biomass into fuels and useful materials. I mean, they, that was not the outcome that they had hoped for. But there was no choice for me. I mean, this is the conclusion I came to. And and you know, I think at the end of the day, as an academic, you're 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 paid to be a truth finder, and yeah. and and then you publish the work, and then you have to live by whether it's meritorious or not. Nobody's yeah. ever debunked any of this, by the way. They may not like it and they'll complain about it but nobody is like he's wrong because of this this and this. Yeah,
0: nobody. I mean there's there's still a fairly robust bioplastics industry out there trying to tackle this problem. But you moved away. You after that you went to Glycofi or you formed Glycofi?
1: After that I my mindset was I can't spend another 6 years on something that I then figure out is useless. If I want to solve a problem it has to be a problem that I really I think develop conviction around that it's an important problem. That, that means if you solve it, someone's going to really care. Not yeah. if you solve it, you give the impression of solving an important problem. And so I think that six-year lesson, you know, sounds like a, a heavy price to pay, but it's it really reinforced in me uh, the, the notion that if you are going to pick a problem, make sure that you that you that that if you solve that problem, there's there's a there's a meaningful change, or it has real impact, and and so that that I think idea uh, became very clear to me in that sort of ninety nine two thousand timeframe. So let's let's talk about glycofy Tell, so tell me uh, how so, you set it up yeah so so the way that came about was you remember it was sequencing of the human genome people were yeah. interested in uh, in obviously in drug discovery and, and 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 the world was saying gee now that we have a blueprint of every single human protein all these um miracle biotech drugs whether it's insulin whether it's erythropoietin all these recombinant proteins that we've been discovering and that have had you know material impact on on human health that's going to be all a lot easier and much faster and I'm like, that that sounds like a reasonable assumption, but if that's true, how do people make these proteins? And at the time, yeah. mammalian cell culture was still in its infancy; it was still a process that often had low yields, required um, uh, animal-derived substitutes that, again, at the time, were a big issue. Remember mad cow disease and things of that sort. So, yeah. so the 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 backbone of that industry. Um, was either mammalian cell culture or E. coli. And so if you had a protein that was not post translationally modified, you could make it an E. coli, but the majority of proteins are actually glycosylated. And so they require a host that recapitulates what goes on in a human cell and therefore glycosylates the protein with, with human sugars. And so it was clear to me that if you wanted to make an impact there, you would have to come up with a system that allows you to make Proteins at low cost, large scale, that have human glycosylation, um, and I thought Chinese hamster ovary technology was not the answer to that. And, and again, don't forget, at the time it was it was hilarious because people were talking about making recombinant proteins in. In transgenic goats, um, in, in transgenic animals were very popular at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Goats, cows, chickens—the entire farm was recruited as a as a transgenic expression system. A lot of people were making recombinant proteins in plants, corn, tobacco, and, and things of that sort. Um, so I mean, it, it, it's as obscure as people were making recombinant proteins in boar semen, right? So it it, it just told you this was a a, a problem that people cared about, there was a lot of people trying to solve it. And I thought a more reasonable solution to that problem uh, would be to use a, a host system that is well established in the industry, which is yeast and fungal protein expression, which is what the sort of, you know, the commercial industrial enzyme industry uses to make proteins. But why can't you use yeast to make human glycoproteins? The problem is they will put the wrong sugars on the protein and therefore make it useless. And so I like, that's a real engineering problem. Can I take a yeast? and basically re-engineer its entire glycosylation machinery to make human glycoproteins. That was the question. Uh, and it turned out I wasn't the first one to think about that. In fact, Kieran Brewer- that. Yeah, go ahead. Kierin Brewery had uh, had had thought about and no, hadn't just thought about it. They'd been working on it for probably 8 years at the time with 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 distinct but marginal success. I mean, and there was a group in Belgium that also had worked on trying to do that in Picia. And so I knew others were trying. I knew others were partially successful, but I thought one thing I'm good at is cell engineering. And so I think I have a better way of approaching the problem. And I don't think we have time to go into the details, but when you dig into the details, it's super fun to like read their literature, read their papers, really understand what they were doing, and then say, I think that's a mistake. That's not what they should have done. And then you do the experiment and it validates basically your suspicion. And all of a sudden, this nut that they've been trying to crack for like three years and one frustrating paper after the other, um, you know, all of a sudden turns out um, uh, uh, you have the answer to and you sort of are able to break through that. And, uh, and then within, I think, four or five years, we're able to show that we were able to make very discrete human glycoproteins in this engineered yeast that we were working on. I mean, I remember when Kieran began to get into uh, drug
0: discovery, and we're I remember thinking, well, what you know, I guess they've got they've got some um well, they certainly had money, but but that makes perfect sense. They're a brewer, right? I mean they they were a brewer by yeah. by yeah. founding. So then they're gonna yeah. work with yeast. But yeah. did, when you when you started looking at this problem, did you reach out to them? Did you say, should we collaborate? Or you just read the papers and thought, let's see if I can sort of do it better.
1: No, we did not reach out to Kieran. Um, however, I mean, again, I've really studied their papers and there was one guy, I forgot his name now. But he was just my hero because this guy had sort of pushed the envelope the furthest. And I remember years later, probably after Glycophy was already acquired by Merck, I met him at a meeting, and I was just like, "Oh my God, you're that guy!" And he's like, "Oh my God, you're that guy, right?" And it was just such a funny meeting because I sort of had um, had uh, had a huge respect for the guy, but you know they weren't able to sort of really get it to work and yeah. we ultimately did get it to work so yeah okay so just tell me about like
0: how you founded the company so you've got this problem you've identified this problem and you think that you can solve it so, yeah, then, so then what then what did you do
1: yeah and so this is where dartmouth is a really unusual uh, sort of academic institution because while it's really focused on undergraduate teaching the the alumni and sort of the people that are on boards around here are very entrepreneurially minded and so i was fortunate i was teaching a class with the former dean of the engineering school and we would have lunch together and he asked me what i was doing and i said look i'm working on this problem i think it's a really important thing and he said, like you know i know two people that are really heavily involved in the biotech industry i think they should hear your story so we met with them they heard it and they said it's a super hard problem but if you solve this this is going to be something really useful yeah and so that ultimately i think ended up in terry mcguire uh, who's now an old friend, and um, but he wrote one of the first checks and said, look, I wanna give this guy a shot. And it was a small investment, maybe half a million bucks. And said, let's give this guy a shot and see whether he can do anything with that. And so, and then Dartmouth was very generous in uh, sort of saying, look, we're not gonna tax that, that little money you have. Why don't you give us shares in the company instead and we'll let you use this lab space for some limited period of time. And so they were very um, supportive and helpful. We raised a little bit of money and and I had a very specific strategy in mind of how to solve this problem. So it involved building libraries and really screening libraries in high throughput with mass spec Mm -hmm. where everyone else was doing like, you know, they made one change, then they made the protein and they purified it. Then they had some very complicated HPLC method of assessing the glycans. And I realized you need to do all that in a much more uh, high throughput fashion. And that was one of the big sort of, I think, breakthroughs of understanding that you need high throughput analysis to, to really make this work. And so was able to put all that together. And within literally within like a, a year, a year and a half, we had sort of caught up with everyone else that had been at this for almost a decade. And that's when people sort of develop faith that, Hey, this guy said he's going to do this and looks like he's really making progress. And that's when we were able to raise more money. And so how, so, okay. So
0: this half a million that you get, uh, you start sort of using that money to do more work at Dartmouth though.
1: At Dartmouth, yes, but but with a clear understanding that this is related to the company, yeah, um, uh, and ultimately has to leave the labs of Dartmouth and find its own place. But at the beginning, they were kind enough to let me sort of, quote unquote, incubate it um, at the college.
0: Yeah, perfect. So how did you then actually move it outside the? And you you stayed at Dartmouth, obviously, because you're still at Dartmouth. But did you, you know, bring your some grad students with you to start the company? How did you actually, you know, fill build this thing that became a company that you could sell one day?
1: So, so again, part of the um, way to attract talent is you you tell people a story. Like, you tell them, why is this important? This is why I'm doing it. And do you want to be part of this? And I ended up, you know, hiring a bunch of postdocs. And I think there were maybe a few grad students even that were involved, master students at least. Some with undergrads who were working on projects here or there. So it was a very vibrant, active time in my lab. Lots of people, like, totally overcrowded. Um, so that's that's how we got the original team together. And at some point, we moved the company out, and they became employees. Um, everything at the beginning ran through Dartmouth payroll, and they were sort of postdocs, yeah. right? And and yeah. so, and um, so so then you're set up in an actual space. You're running a company. I don't. How many people were there when it was sold? So I wasn't running it. So my part, this this former dean that I mentioned, um, his name is Charles Hutchinson. He he was my sort of business partner. I you know I was taking care of the science, and he was taking care of fundraising, you know, ra- raising money. And he also, yeah. he was a former Dean. He knew a lot about, you know, um, organizational behavior and how to manage people and things like that, that I wasn't necessarily a, a master in at the time. Um, so, so I learned a lot from him. And so he ran that and I basically ran the science. And so we, we raised successive amounts of, 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 of financing, started bringing in pharma partners that were interested in the work because they really felt that this may be the future. And so Within a few years, we had probably six, seven partnerships where we were showing people that we could make their protein that they thought they had to make in in CHO um, in this yeast, and so which is which was faster and cheaper. It was faster, cheaper, and so so at the beginning, the whole game was you make proteins in yeast is cheaper than making them in in CHO cells. Yeah. What ended up emerging as a much more important aspect of the whole story is, that at the same time that we were doing that work, the sort of the the glycobiology community was appreciating that these sugars have profound impacts on pharmacokinetic behavior, pharmacodynamic behavior, half-life in general, um, on tissue-specific targeting, with antibodies, effector functions are highly glycosylation dependent. So all of a sudden, an industry that had one way of making all of these drugs and had no control over the composition of glycosylation, all of a sudden had a tool where you could take this yeast strain, it would make that structure. You take this, it makes a different structure. And now you could take a protein and make it with all its different glycoforms and then figure out which one is the most potent or which one has specific properties you're looking for. So it was it was a, a really a, a, up to that point, um, unknown capability or nobody had that ability to do that at scale for sure. And so, and so that's what became the, I think the more interesting aspect.
0: And so these farmer partners would come in and say, we want you to build a protein that looks like this Exactly. can you do it? You With would the say, sugar we- structure. Right, exactly. You'd say, we can do it. Here it is. Yep. And then they would, I don't know, they would then order it. You would fulfill an order from them or no?
1: No, you would then license them the cell line and then they would use that cell line for their manufacturing process.
0: Eventually. So you, you could have done that you know, forever. You could have just kept bringing in farmer partners.
1: We We could have, but life- gets more complicated because there are always external factors that sort of start um, uh, um, uh, messing up your original vision. In our case, um, it was sort of that fa- that 2005, 2006 time frame, this was a time frame when when nobody wanted to hear about platform companies. All these earlier genomics platform companies have gone bust right. um or didn't pan out the way people thought. And so when you went out and raised money, people were like we're not in platform, not interested. Platform, not interested. So it was a time where the venture community was not receptive to platforms at all. And they said you need to, you need to develop your own drugs. And so this was a terrible decision that I dumb and naive as I was at the time, I just didn't know any better deferred to my board members and to my colleagues. And that's the path we went down to um, uh, to, for at least a year and a half. And it was a complete fool's errand. And um, what was your target? Our target was, believe it or not, it was a uh, version of Rituxin that is afucosylated and therefore has a higher ADCC. This after like, you know, you hire all these consultants. This is where sort of you have something really powerful and the business people are telling you, you need to do this, this, and this in order to raise money here. And and again, I was too dumb and too naive to know any better. And so sort of, I had to go along with this. And so this yeah. went on for like a year and a half or two at the end of which I was like, I'm done with this shit. I, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. You do whatever you want. And at that point, the board realized if I leave, that's probably really not a good thing for the company. And so they fired the CEO, they hired to like execute the strategy um I got back in charge and then within a few months we did a big deal with Lily a big deal with Merck um, and and momentum really picked up quickly on sort of doing work for others and being a platform and uh, and then like you know half a year later what happened is we we met with, our colleagues at, 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 at Eli Lilly and they said, like, we really want you to do all this work for us because we're very interested in this technology. And we said, love to, but we can't. We're fully at capacity. We just signed a deal with Merck. Um, and then they called us the next day and said, we want to meet with you again. And so then we met with them and they said, look, um, we understand that you're at capacity, but we actually want to acquire the company. And so that huh. then triggered a process where um, um, Merck was also a shareholder. You and were then, then, I mean, you legally had to turn around and tell Merck that we the had to exactly come yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to because they were a shareholder, right? And so then, but then also again, I was not directly involved in most of that uh, negotiation. We hired Morgan Stanley; they ran the process for us. And at the end, um, Merck won out. Merck, Merck prevailed in that process and, and acquired the company. And so this, this I, was- I'm trying to remember. I don't was that
0: public at the time that Lily had also put an offer in. I think we just heard that Merck was buying the company, and that's all I knew.
1: Yeah, I don't think it was public. I don't. I don't think we talked about it.
0: That's so fascinating, um, but this to
1: go back to this retuxin. I'm going to say it's like a me better. It's was a it? me better, exactly. It's a me better. It's a me better by people that have that are really good yeast geneticists, really good glycobiologists, really good protein analytical people. They're now all of a sudden going to be in the drug discovery business and developing a drug that is a basically a bio better. I mean, it's it was preposterous. It was yeah. But, but
0: anyway. I mean, for you, for you that does not meet your criteria of a problem to solve. I mean, that was... You, Definitely the, not. The platform, absolutely, that was solving a problem. This is sort of applying the, that technology to ma- make some money. And there's nothing yes. wrong. I mean, look, biosimilars would really help the healthcare spend in this country. Absolutely. So, I mean, that is a problem in a way. But for you, I don't think... I agree. No. Why I see why you'd be like, I don't want any part of this.
1: Yeah. yeah. And also, the, the the atmosphere was just the science was more and more getting deprioritized. The really good people were like realizing that this isn't a place where they have a real, you know, intellectually curious home and they wanted to leave. And so it just became increasingly difficult. And, and, but the good thing was, you know, I, the board realized that if I left, it would be bad and they were willing to then basically go back to uh um, focusing Science on the platform theory. and then it all worked out. And so, and yeah. again, what's, what's, what's so funny now is like, you know, this, this was in 2006 that Merck acquired the company. And it was at the time, $400 million was real money. Right now, that's yeah. just like, you know, that's launch money. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: But back then, that was the largest private acquisition, the largest all cash acquisition of a private company, which now is laughable when you look at it. I know. Well, it. still. And so
0: it was a huge, it was a 10X return, I think. I think I read that someplace Yeah, so, Yeah. For the the yeah. investors made out as well. I mean, that's a win. That's a win. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so, so what I, what I learned from that is I was not a glycobiologist. I was not a yeast geneticist, but I really had, I think a a sense of, this is an important problem and and I can put together a a talented team to work on that problem and make real progress. And like, really, I mean, again, there were others competing with us, but I think it's fair to say we are the ones who succeeded in cracking the scientific nut that needed to be cracked and we were successful and that ultimately got rewarded. And so
0: yeah, go ahead. So, so that's that becomes the model for you. Then, if I can find a problem that I know I think I can crack and I think it has value, then the money will take care of itself. Yes. Okay. So then, then, then you turn to Adamab when you're done with Glycofy.
1: Well, that's that's another interesting story. So there, you know, at the time again, that, that was 2006. Merck had just acquired Glycofy. Um, a lot of people came to me at the time and said, "Like, I've got this great idea. I want you to work with me on this." and I looked at them and some of them were interesting. And one of them was an antibody idea. Wow. Um, and uh, and so I looked into that and I thought, hmm, that's so interesting. I mean, the whole world of pharma is talking about how they're gonna shift away from small molecules into biologics. And I'm like, there's only so many recombinant erythropoietins and in insulins. Um, and we've already shaken that tree pretty hard. So yeah. if you wanna be in biologics, clearly antibodies are the answer, right? And so the only thing at the time though, was that anybody sort of had this whole Kabili genetic patent hanging over it. And so people, and, and, and many of the phage technologies were covered by patents. And so people were saying, let's do alternative scaffolds. So I don't know if you remember, but this was the, no. the era 2006, seven, eight, nine was every conference on anybody engineering you went to, someone had some new alternative scaffold that they were peddling. And we're like, nah, the most validated um, modality is human antibodies and so we have to figure out how to get around all these patents and figure out a better way of doing it. So there was a legal challenge in terms of figuring out what the IP landscape is, but more importantly, come up with a solution where the integration of target biology just becomes easier and faster and more successful. And that's what the company ended up doing. Um, and again, it was a pure hypothesis that if you build it, people will like it. And yeah. It turned out, turned out to be the case. An- another platform company. Another platform company.
0: Yes. So when you formed it, was there that same pressure on you? Well, okay, but you're going to take this platform and then you're going to find your own drugs off it and then and, and go down and make an asset and bring it to market.
1: Um, I would say definitely not. Again, after the successful GlycoFi exit, you just have a lot more A, understanding. You just know more and you know um, what investors you want to work with. And... Um, You also are just more experienced. So if someone had said that, I would say the answer is no. (laughs) If you want to invest in a company like that, go find yourself something else. But that's not what we're doing here. So I think you have to be super transparent with what you're going to do and stick to that and and be transparent to investors and set the expectations up front. And so I told them I'm going to build a platform company. If they then invested and decided we should do something different, it's their job to convince me that we should do something different, not the other way around. And, and
0: do, do you think that you had that power because you had that big exit? Now you sort of yeah. can say you, yeah. you think so.
1: Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think, yeah, success gives you clout, right? Because you have returned um, uh, multiples of the invested capital to the investors. And when you do that, they trust you more. They want to work with you more and, um, and, and and they'll believe you more, right? I mean, let's not forget. I mean, this is an industry that is that is very interesting because in my view, there's an incredible amount of bullshit going on, and and it's an industry that you know promises a lot, and um, and, and very often delivers way 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 less, and, and and so it's it's reasonable for investors to be very skeptical when people say they're going to do X Y and Z. In 95% of the cases, people don't do X Y and Z. They barely yeah. do X. <laughs> right.
0: But why? So, so let me ask why. When when I, so I agree, right? But I always feel like that's because it it's harder than everybody thinks. And so the promises that you make cannot be done in five years. Sometimes it takes 10. Or what you think is possible, you start unwinding the biology and you realize that it isn't. And that's why it, it, it's, it, I'm not going to say it under delivers because this industry has done amazing things. I mean, you would have to agree absolutely, Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, I, I think we're talking about two different things. There is an inherent risk. This is a very risky industry yeah. because there's scientific risk there is legal risk, there's people risk. Um, Then once you have a molecule, there's clinical risk. I mean, there's so much risk throughout the entire value chain, if you will, or creation chain. Um, We all understand that. I think that what what I'm sort of allergic to is the hyperbole and promising stuff that you know you don't... Like the Elizabeth Holmes stories, right, where... uh, Yeah, I mean, but they, no,
0: but no one in the industry believed that. No one in the industry believed that. I mean, that—that's why they're thats why her investors were not Atlas or, or Five AM. I mean, it was SoftBank.
1: True, true, true. But um, yeah, I—I I, I think there is um, some level of that going on in our industry too. And you may disagree huh. with that, but I—no,
0: I, I don't. I know. Just tell—tell tell me. I mean, I can.
1: No, no, I'm not, gonna not tell to you.
0: name. I don't mean name names, but like. <laughs> In what what areas do we think that that is happening? Gene therapy, um, I, I don't know. Where there's sort of like immunotherapy, there's a lot of promises made with precision medicine that are not really showing up at the patient level yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we all we all to some extent have to paint a picture of the future to raise money. The question is how, with what level of integrity do you paint that? Picture and with what, you know, what caveats do you insert into the promised land description that you're giving? And it's yeah. a super delicate conversation of what do you say and what is based on fact? What are you promising that may or may not occur in the future? And again, p- people have different tolerance on that spectrum of what they're willing to say and what they're willing to listen to for that matter. Huh. Okay. So, so a- Adimab is now, what, 12, 12 years? years? Yeah,
0: 12, 12 years, years old. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, no,
0: 13. Yeah. Almost 13. And it's a platform company still. Yep. You have, I don't know how many partnerships you have, but many, many partners. We have
1: at this point over 75 partners.
0: Yeah. It's incredible. And, and I feel like this, this is like one of those, you know, when all the investors are saying, no, 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 if you, you know, if we're going to invest in you, you need to have an asset because the asset means you can sell it. And then you get the entire revenue stream, whatever. Yep. Yep. You know, you've shown that that is not the only way to make money in this industry or to have a, a company that lasts a long time.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because, again, when people talk about innovation, they always talk about they always use the word and they all associate different meanings with it. For Like for me, innovation has many different levels, like corporate structure and how you actually think about a company. There's a lot of innovation there. Like normally, you know, venture investors, they want to invest and then like, you know, typically within seven, eight years, they want to get their money back. You have to understand that, but you can build companies that go beyond that. You just have to figure out an innovative way of making them whole and allowing you to continue something where you think it's better to not sell the company or not go public. And so there's opportunity for innovation in, in, in many different aspects of our industry, including corporate structure. Yeah. Um, so in our case, we were loving what we were doing. People were coming to us in large numbers and we had a real impact on the industry. I mean. With these 75 partners, we've worked on 340 plus drug discovery programs. Of those, currently 41 are in the clinic. And I can tell you by the end of 2025, we're gonna have over hundred drugs in the clinic. And in several, in one approved drug now, and there will be several approved drugs at that point, right? And so when you look at the sort of more financial um, world of biotech investing, you may be familiar with these uh, royalty pharma funds, right? They, yeah. they buy up royalties. Yeah, We're doing the exact same thing. We're just not using capital to buy the royalties. We're using technology at the very beginning of the process to insert ourselves in this process where ideas around disease biology turn into molecules. We just do that really well. People like to work with us. But you have to be patient it takes 10 years before that matures and actually becomes a royalty bearing program but that's what we've been doing now for 12 years and i want to do it for another 10 years or however long yeah because because that's a gift that keeps on giving and now we're you know a highly profitable company we can afford to um you know to just wait and basically run this business that we've that we've built so you're saying your technology
0: is in one approved product now yes and but you've been living on R&D money i would assume for the past decade well, From these 75 partners that you've got?
1: It's it's, it's essentially, yes. So they, they pay us to do the work, but then there are milestones if they go to, into the clinic and if they hit yeah. clinical yeah. milestones. Yeah, so it's, it's a combination of, of, um, of, uh, of funded discovery of like recent reimbursement, FTE reimbursement, um, and then milestones, and then at the end, of course, royalties.
0: Right, So, but the royalties are almost like
1: icing. They're icing, but they're such a huge piece of the future value. So we know essentially, we, we never. the last time we um, raised money, well, let me go back to the innovation of, uh, around corporate structure. So the company became profitable in 2013. Again, this doesn't happen often. Started in 07, within six years, we had a profitable company.
0: It's been every year you've turned a profit since.
1: Every year since then we've turned a profit, okay? But in 2013, that was six years in our venture investors were saying, yeah, you know, look, you know, Benindes love the company, love what we're seeing. But, you know, can we go public? You know, do we think someone's going to want to buy us? I'm like, what are you guys talking about? I'm totally not interested in that. Right. (laughs) And um, but I'm a good partner. I understand your problem. Your problem is returning liquidity to your investors. So let's just focus on your problem. And don't tell me what to do with this company. I get your problem and let me f- solve your problem differently. So here we have a company in 2013, 2014, that was highly profitable, profitable in the foreseeable future, basically bringing in one royalty bearing program after the other and building this huge portfolio of royalty bearing programs, which aren't accretive now, they're not They're not giving us a royalty now, but yeah. if you just look at the attrition funnel in, in anybody drug discovery, anyone can look at this and say, These are top companies with smart people that are taking these assets into the clinic. These guys are going to have drugs. And so there was a significant future value. Now, all of a sudden, you could look to investors that don't want to invest in highly risky biotech startups that promise you something that in most cases they don't deliver. Here's a company that was building an intrinsically valuable portfolio of programs. And all of a sudden, you're talking to insurance companies, you're talking to pension funds and people that normally don't invest in biotech. And so what we simply did was say, okay, great. We'll sell you shares and then we'll take that money and we'll buy out the venture investors. And so what we did is over a period of time, um, we started, they used to own like 35% of the company, the venture investors. And at this point they own like 18%. And we just, every year we buy them down a little bit and we bring in new investors that are much more long-term investors and care much more about the intrinsic growth of that portfolio, than uh, near-term liquidity, well, how, so that's how we solved that problem.
0: Uh, so I, I love that. But how did you decide on what those share prices were going to be?
1: Um, at the, the in the first process, we ran a, a uh, we ran an auction basically. We said who's the highest bidder, and then we came to a price. And at that point, that was in two thousand eighteen. That was at one point one billion for your your net worth. For the total uh, market cap of the company. Yeah, your market cap, right? Yeah, and so, so we sold. We sold. I think uh, we sold probably around ten percent of the company. So we got one hundred ten million dollars, and we just took that and bought out the existing investors. So like Google Ventures, we bought them out completely. Um, uh, so do they have to?
0: If you say, okay, we went out and did an auction, and they valued the the market cap of Adamab is going to be one point one billion, you said, and uh, so that sets the share price at X you then turn to Google Ventures and say, the share price is going to be X, we want to buy you out. And they have to agree to that or no. No, no,
1: no. What we said is, we're willing to buy your shares back. At this price. At this price. Tell us what you want to sell. And and then Google, in the case of Google, they said, look, we have a relatively small position. It's uh, Timing-wise, we would like to sell the entire position. And I'm like, everyone, by the way, everyone had, so 10% of the company was sold to the new investors. So yeah. everyone in the company was able to sell 10% of their shares. Right? You, that, you, the, the employees. Everyone, the employees, yeah, okay. the, all the, everyone had had the right to sell 10% of their shares. It's like going public then. It is and like that, going in public. In that way, yeah. yeah. But uh, what I can tell you is I wasn't selling any shares. I was not interested in selling shares. So I was able to take my allocation of the shares I could have sold and said, okay, you know what, Google, you've been great partners. I'm going to allocate you all my liquidity. So if you want to sell them all at this price, I'm going to give you that. And so that's how that worked. And so. But they, they
0: could have said, no, we don't, th- these are only for the investors who said, look, it's been 10 years. We want to get Exactly. It. Exactly. And you, okay.
1: I was all scratching right. ah. their itch because they were yeah. telling me we want liquidity now. If you want liquidity, here it is. So that's, that's what we did. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, so it was, I think it's a, it, it, I've not heard anyone else do this in our industry, and so me neither. So, 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 Brady, what happened then is we did that in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18. The share price went up to over four billion dollars, and every year now we've done one of those secondaries where we basically buy back shares, buy out the old investors, and bring in new investors. And it's so, um,
0: and so now you've got long-term investors in the company. No, exactly. none of that original VC. You're still private. And uh, no,
1: there's some of them are still there, but they just have much smaller position.
0: Yeah, and they don't mind. I, they want to be. They want to be there. Most of them want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah. That's um, that's fascinating. So so I can't, so no, I
1: can't ne- no need to go go public, no need to sell yourself, um, and we continue doing what we're doing, and um, and everyone's happy. So, so then, so okay, so
0: you're still at Adamab, you're still at Dartmouth, but you've got like a handful of other, uh, co-founded companies now that you're that you're part of. Yes. Adagio. So um, I so I just I saw this happen, and I thought, oh, okay, so this is somebody who's trying to prepare someone who sees a problem as you often do and think there needs to be a fix. And that is, there's going, we've had coronaviruses before they're going to be more in the future and we need to be better prepared than we are right now. Yes. Is that the impetus for the company?
1: Completely. So let me tell you like again, the, the, the Genesis story a little bit. So here we are in March cases are going up. It's clear that there's a, a direct path for companies that have good B cell cloning technology to isolate antibodies that, um, could do something useful here. Um, at the same time, we're still very hopeful that vaccines are gonna uh, you know, make a difference here. And so yeah. vaccines are typically a much more cost-effective and durable uh, um, uh, way of dealing with an infectious disease. So we first got data uh, late March, early April from our collaborators at Albert Einstein that showed that patients in the Bronx Um, that were anywhere between 35 and 55 days uh, uh, post-diagnosis, in other words, convalescent patients, that 20% of them had no antibody titers, like no measurable titers against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, telling us that the immune response to this virus for some reason is not very robust and is not very durable. And for us, that meant this is going to be a steep hill for, for vaccines because if a live viral infection doesn't give you a, a, a robust immune response. Vaccines are going to have a tough time. So that, that's when we realized mm, antibodies may play a more important role here than we originally thought. The other thing is that the person that runs antibody science at 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 Atomab is, is a woman named Laura Walker, who's uh-huh. who's been a very prolific um, scientist in the area of uh, B cell immunology of of viral infections, has extensively published on dengue, Zika yellow fever, Ebola, you name it. I mean, she's made seminal contributions to that field and is a real thought leader. And Laura's view was, um, first of all, everyone's talking about SARS-CoV-2 when in reality, beta coronaviruses have been spilling over into the human population in a documented fashion now for decades. So we have, Several major outbreaks, SARS, MERS, now SARS-CoV-2, a global pandemic. We have two endemic viruses, HKU1, OC43. Mm-hmm. So these beta coronaviruses have been pretty pretty active. And, and amongst those, uh, the CLADE1 beta coronavirus lineage B is the one that targets human ACE2 as an entry mechanism. And so that's SARS and SARS-CoV-2. And there are many viruses that are circulating in bats right now that use that same entry mechanism. And so her insight was, there is gonna be a sequel to this movie. This is just round two. And if we solve this problem now, there's gonna be another outbreak at some point in the future. We already had two ACE2 mediated outbreaks or pandemics with SARS and SARS-CoV-2. We need to find a solution to that human receptor, which is clearly vulnerable. And at the time, I mean, there's a, there's work that's been going on for decades of understanding of how these viruses recombine in nature, how they spill over to humans. This is all understood. So anyone who's like, who would have thought, just go and read the literature. It's all yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you go re- read these papers from 2016 from Ralph Baric's group, where he describes this virus with one. And where he says, look, here's a virus that we isolated from bats. We can readily propagate this virus on human airway epithelial cells through an ACE2 mediated event. And by the way, this should give us, you know, sort of a warning sign that we should be prepared for this. Or he, he says this provides an opportunity for preparing for a future coronavirus outbreak in 2016. Yeah. Okay. Boom. Here we are four years later with a global so damning pandemic. damning to
0: read that now. It's so damning it's, it's, to read that. It's yeah. rough.
1: It's really rough. Yeah. So it is, it is, our mindset was just playing this game of whack-a-mole. New pandemic, we work on it now, and then it goes away. If we want to do something here, it has to be a holistic solution to the problem. And that means broad neutralization of the entire clade one beta coronaviruses, all the viruses that target ACE2 for human, for uh, human ACE2 for entry. That was the objective. And we said, if we can't get that, we're not interested because Regeneron, they're awesome at doing B-cell cloning. Lily and uh, uh, Upcelerate, they're they're doing a fine job. They know how to B-cell clone. Um, but they're not approaching the problem the same way we are, and so this is where we just took a very different approach to the to the problem. But so, but uh,
0: well, first off, you know, how effective our vaccine is going to be, I'm kind of assuming that we're all going to have to get a booster every year. No, whatever vaccine, whatever one of the vaccines you get, you're probably going to need a booster every year. If what you just said actually holds up in the large population, the antibodies don't stick around that long. The titers are low. You know, so, every year so, we get a booster
1: until yeah, this so, one so, for sure is gone. So, so I think. Uh, I think if, if we get there, that actually would be pretty good, but tell me what the level of protection is. So if you yeah. get a shot once a year and you get ninety plus percent protection, we're done. We're back to normal. That's not what I expect. If you look at the data, and in particular if you look at data in elderly, I just I just don't think we're even close to that. Like fifty. Fifty um, percent protection. Not even. Not even, I think. Right? So, okay. so, 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 and again, for how long? So right now it looks like, I mean, these titers are waning quickly. So, you know, you, they, they peak after three, four weeks and then they come down like a bag of cement. And by the way, again, here's when you look at the literature, when you look at how other beta coronaviruses stimulate the immune system, it's all the same story. OC43, it's an endemic virus to humans, present over the entire globe, causes cold-like symptoms, you get infected, you're protected for about 40 weeks. And after that, within 50 weeks, your chance of reinfection is 50%. Okay? Yeah. So if we're in that boat, so first of all, this whole notion of herd immunity, forget it. It doesn't exist because there is no lasting immunity. So anyway, so I hope you're right. I <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't, I don't, listen,
0: I'm only regurgitating what I've read, all right? I mean, yeah. you're the person that I want to ask these questions to. So I, I hope I'm right too, but I don't, obviously I, don't have the yeah. idea. It's just with the plastic. It's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to I want to ask one one more final thing. Yeah. And you you probably know what I'm going to ask about. So no. uh, a couple of years ago, a year ago, a year ago, you yep. Adam put out a paper and saying that ram sasiscarans uh, paper on uh, influenza antibody and a zika antibody had been previously published in other in other journals. You said that they could not be reproduced. He's an MIT researcher. There had been a company formed around this research, and it was a big deal, right? Uh, And I don't. I'm. Go ahead. Go ahead. I can't judge whether it's
1: a big deal. What I know is. Well, it became a big deal. Yeah, Yeah.
0: it became a big deal in the media, and it was this researcher is accusing another researcher, and who knows what's right. Your paper was, you know, a lot of people were saying this. Your paper was. looked good, right? Like it seemed to lay it out exactly as the problem was. He denied the whole thing. I actually don't know what happened. I assume that MIT did an investigation, but I don't know what the results were. Yeah. Do you? Or is it ongoing?
1: Um, I don't know anything really. Um, uh, as, as, as it re- well, I, I know a few things. I, I know MIT tried very hard, not just he himself, but as an institution, tried to pressure the publisher not to publish the work, which I find outrageous. This is an institution that is paid by the public to get information out there. We were not no. accusing it by the way of anything. All we said is, here's our findings. This guy said he did X, Y, and Z. It looks very similar to what we see in this paper and this. Well, he paper. doesn't even he doesn't even disclose the sequence. That's the first problem with with yeah. the whole publication industry. That yeah. you know they always want like you know sensationalist claims but they don't want to enforce their own editorial policies. So that's yeah. the first thing that rubs me the wrong way. No sequences. So here's someone who says, I have this great gizmo that I invented, but I'm not telling you actually what it is. I'm just telling you it can do these things. I mean, I just think it violates fundamental principles of scientific communication, which is tell me what you did, do it in a way where it's reproducible and other yeah. people can check it. And he did none of those things. And so yeah. he, and he made these extraordinary claims of how he did all this on a computer. Yeah, And so then... Our head of computational biology, who is just an incredibly good sleuth. Well, I should say this also within Atomap and my co-founder Dane. Whenever we hear heard his name, everyone thought he's full of shit, and it's not what? true. Previously. Because we we had worked in this area for many years, too, and we understood how incredibly difficult it is. And in particular, you can get binders, but then they end up not being specific. It is is a very hard problem. We're nowhere close to solving that problem. So when all of a sudden someone comes out of the woodwork, does not describe the method, does not describe the composition of the thing that was actually supposedly created from this algorithm, you get a little bit um, skeptical. That raised a flag for you. That raised a flag for us and we all thought it's, but we, there was nothing actionable. I mean, look, people say a lot of things and they claim a lot of things. Not, it's not our problem really, right? If someone exaggerates their competence, it happens every day. So that's not something we find uh, actionable. But what happened is that our head of computational biology, Max Vasquez, um, ended up figuring out the actual sequence. So he, tr- he basically said, okay, this is what's said in the paper. Uh, let's see whether there are any patents associated with that. Sure enough, there were patents. And then from the patents, you could sort of figure out what the corresponding sequence was. And then mm-hmm. he took that sequence. And then he found, well, that sequence looked awfully like an antibody that was described three years before. So that was in the first case. That was in the, I think the Zika case was the first case. And then yeah. like, well, let's look at another case. So he looked at the second case, which was this um, uh, influenza antibody. And here again, same story, no disclosure of sequence, these extraordinary claims of how this was all done on a computer. And again, he was able to trace it back to the patents. And in the patents, again, we take that sequence and we find that that sequence was published before by another group. So what's the chance of this guy having this computer that keeps on spitting out sequences that were already described by other people in the past? That chance is pretty slim. And again, I'm not judging the likelihood. I'm just saying, I think it's slim. You may think it's very likely. So our obligation at that point was to say, look, these things that this guy is describing that by the way, he isn't willing to disclose. We're telling you what they are. And we are telling you, they look like this. That's what we did. And then there were other little things in there that were just so um, incriminating. So in one of the sequences, the original paper had a cloning artifact of two amino acids that were in the antibody sequence. Uh, this This is not a sequence that is normally associated with an antibody. But for some reason, when his computer is trying to find sequences that bind to this target they include that artifact? I mean, at that point, we knew there's yeah. no way that this wasn't the template for this, and so yeah. we felt again, we didn't accuse anyone. We just said, here are the facts as we see them and 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 and, it, and that paper was downloaded fourteen thousand times in one that's... week in Mabs, which is not a you know a, you know a journal that I think typically think sees... yeah <laughs> yes, so anyway I mean, so that's. that's... Listen, but you, I mean, you have to understand.
0: De facto, that was an accusation. Even if the paper, I mean, when that came out, everyone's like, "Okay, let's look over there and let's look at REM," and they did. So it was it it functioned as an accusation, even though there's nothing in the paper that yeah. really accused them of everything. So yep, I think the question that I want to ask is: If we look at your history, if we look at uh, metabolics and you left there and you said this I, with the claims they're making, I do not agree with. In fact, I think they're false. I'm going to write a paper on it, and then this. Uh, Right here we're talking about with with Ram's paper. My question is, I, when you come across those things, there's several ways you could deal with it. you could you could throw up your hands and quit. You could go to the press and say, "Hey, by by the way, I'm going to be a whistleblower and say something's going on." But what you do is you turn around and attack it with science and publish it as a scientist. Yep. and to to me, it feels like, when you come across these things, especially if money in, in, is involved, in his case, he had a company formed around this technology, Visterra. He,
1: he'd already sold the company, so he, he already he Provided. already cashed his check.
0: Yeah, but venture venture capital money had gone into that problem, yep. into that that technology, yep. and Metabolics was, you know, a, a functioning company that had venture capital in it too. Yep. But it seems to me that you are like morally offended when you come across those things. That this is not the way science should be done and it makes you furious. Am I accurate in reading it that way?
1: You're 100% accurate. I think we are being a scientist, in particular being a scientist that is paid by the public. In my view, you're paid to find the truth. It's a very noble exercise. And if you corrupt that, or it's a very noble profession I should say. Yeah. And if you corrupt that profession solely for the pur- for the purpose of self-enrichment, it offends me deeply. Yeah. And yes, and so when I see it, I have no fear of calling it out because I think I have um uh, you know a moral, duty. And, uh, a moral duty on the one hand and, and 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 I'm in a fortunate position where I'm not afraid of it <laughs> I, I don't mind i don't mind and, and I, did, I have to say like in this in this in this um in the mit case what I loved about the people that I work with, my co-founder Dane. Max Vasquez, Eric Crowland, our CSO at Adamap, Laura Walker, who's very close to this whole body of work. Every one of them said, that's the right thing to do. We have an obligation to the public to publish this. And and our business development group said, are you guys fucking crazy? (laughs) People are gonna be mad at us, this and that. I said, look, at the end of the day, we're a scientific organization. Um, We're an organization of integrity. And if we find something like this, we have an obligation. And so it was so ironic that, The business development group wanted us not to do it, and later on, we were accused that we somehow did this for financial gain, which is absolute nonsense. I mean, there was no gain for us at all. Yeah. But, I mean, you
0: could have gone to uh, the journals that published those two papers of his and said, hey, we think
1: that there's something factually wrong, and let the journal handle it. We did. And guess what the journals did? What? Oh, we don't want to hear about it. We'll launch an investigation. They're still there. There's no retraction. There's nothing. Oh, you tried that first before you published. Um, we told them in advance, telling them that this would come out, so that they were prepared, um, and that they could sort of react to a potential media inquiry. They yeah, don't I care. mean, the, the sad thing is, they don't care. I tell you, they don't care.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the criticism that I saw coming your way was that that this looked like a, a, a broadside, like a blind attack, and that you could have gone to the journals, and people felt like maybe you could have done it another way.
1: I think Honestly, that's, a, that's a fair. I think that's fair. Yes, it could have done in many other ways. This is used to be like things like that were handled between you know, uh, you know, m- between um, uh, men in brown couches slurping whiskey or something, right? They you know, but that's that's fine. That's a world that I don't want to be part of. I think. <laughs> I, it, no, look, this is why. I mean, I I think it is admirable that when you
0: see something that offends your morality as a scientist, you blow it up.
1: I, I, I mean, make it. I make it public. Whether it then blows up is an, another question. But I think in this fair, case, fair. The, the public was interested in this. This was not a. This was not a. A nothing burger. I mean, again, fourteen thousand people in a week. That's that's a fair amount of traffic for a scientific publication.
0: Yeah. Right. Totally agreed. Yeah. So, I just. I mean, it is one of the reasons. Look, this is why I like talking to you. I know that when I talk to you, you were going to shoot me straight. You're going to tell me what's on your mind, and you're not going to be scared about it. That's refreshing in this industry for sure. Oh, thank you. And uh, I find it admirable. But it, you know, as I watch this thing unfold. I was like, yeah, he really gets angry about these things that where science is being tread upon.
1: The, yes, you know, I think it. Look, I, again, I find it's a very noble profession that the public pays for. That's when you abuse that trust just to you want because you want to enrich yourself. I'm offended by that. Yeah, I, I really I find that offensive. Yeah, and angry. I don't think I got angry. I just think look, we have the fact. Let's put the facts out, let's see where they fall. And if I were to like judge the response we got, um, yes, there were some people angry that wanted to, you know, his, his, his buddies, but the vast majority of people um, that reached out to us were like, we really admire that you guys did this. That was, and we feel there was nothing in it for you other than standing up for the integrity yeah. of science. That was yeah. the overwhelming response. Yeah. And again, I
0: have no idea if this is, if it was accurate or not, but I don't know, I was waiting to see what would happen. And I don't know that I've ever saw anything.
1: Well, this is where my huge, again, I told you before, MIT had a life-changing effect on me. And I always viewed it as sort of the Taj Mahal of truth seeking and like yeah. this incredible institution. And then how I saw them behave in this situation, I just was really turned off. Um, that was not, uh, and again, institutions like that can 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 survive a situation like this easily. We investigated this, is what we found, and a story. But yeah. I think their desire was, let's sweep this under the rug and move on. Um,
0: that reminds me I want, I want to ask you something that has nothing to do with this podcast so uh, just going to say thank you for doing this yeah it was fun uh, I enjoyed it totally enjoyed it um, and I'm going to pause this hold on all right that is it there it is your first rounders podcast with Tillman Gerngross thank you Tillman for the conversation I always enjoy it um, I thought that was really interesting the way they provided liquidity for earlier investors of Adamab without ever going public. If you have questions or comments on this show or anything that Nature Biotech does, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. I'll put some information up into our community page um, relevant to this show. I'll get the paper on entrepreneurship that Tillman wrote for us years ago and put that there. And I'll also pull some back coverage um, about the admad paper and the MIT researcher at Ram That'll be in our community page. You can find it there. Thank you, the Midwest Quiet, for use of your music in this podcast. You're listening to this on November 1st. If you're an American citizen, vote if you haven't already done so. Vote. That is all I have to say for now. I will talk to you on the next one. Thank you, and goodbye.